The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain. Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters, and it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 41. What's up and thanks for listening in. My guest today is Ryan Motor Riley, my friend, Viper driver, and currently the commander of Debt 24, which is responsible for pilot training 2.5. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about pilot training 2.5 today. We'll also hit on Motor's career. He's a former Thunderbird, multiple combat deployments in the F-16. He and I have flown several combat sorties together. So I had fun talking with Motor. Hopefully you'll enjoy this episode. But as always, before we get rolling, just a couple admin notes. Let's go and rip the Band-Aid off. Pretty excited about this one. New website designs up, afterburnpodcast.com. Shout out to Seth Louie for the design there. I think he did awesome work. But you can swing over to afterburnpodcast.com. The website will grow, but right now at a minimum, you can find links to all the episodes. If you have a desire to watch the episodes that have been recorded, you can check those out there. Also link to Patreon. If you're looking for additional content and support the podcast, you can swing over to afterburnpodcast.com and you can find links to Patreon. Again, that's some more content, but big shout out to all you who have taken the time to drop a rating review over on iTunes. Last I checked, we're at 577 reviews, which is awesome. So I appreciate everyone doing that. It'd be pretty sweet to get to 600 by the end of the year. So if you have a few seconds and you haven't done so, feel free to swing over to iTunes and drop a rating review. That helps the show grow. It teaches the algorithms and shows algorithms, hey, people are liking this and will hopefully show the podcast to more people. So if you can help me out with that, that would be huge. All right, now to talk a little bit about this episode and put a little context behind it for those who aren't intimately familiar, kind of with the scenario and the environment that we're talking about. So 2015, 2016, these are my opinions. There was a lot of discussion, a lot of energy that started popping up around pilot retention, specifically fighter pilot retention, but it it was across the board. And the Air Force was looking, one, how to retain enough pilots, and two, how to produce enough pilots to fill all the fighter billets or all the cockpits, just period. So out of this era, there's a lot of things that are going on. There's the fighter pilot, the pilot retention efforts that are going on, as well as efforts to figure out how to maximize production of pilots. So there are some perceptions, and this is my opinion again, but I think it's what we saw or what I saw in the squadron. The Air Force was trying to pump as many people through pilot training and put them in fighter cockpits as fighter training squadrons could possibly absorb. 
The F-16 was one of those cases where the F-16 schoolhouse had the most absorption capability. So a lot of people got pumped into the F-16 in that time frame. Anecdotally, I think it's fair to say on average, out of a class of 30, routinely two to five people would go on to fighter cockpits. There were periods during this 2015 to 19, and maybe it's still going on today, where that number was significantly larger. I know at least one instance where half a pilot training class went on to fighters. And I'm not saying they all didn't deserve it, but I think it is probably a stretch and maybe a little bit speeding where the Air Force was trying to solve a numbers game by putting that many people through and getting them into fighter cockpits to solve a number problem. So the reason behind this episode, there's a lot and there has been a lot of discussion around what the Air Force is doing with pilot training and what kind of product they're putting out. I am all for innovation, leveraging technology and improving, something I don't think the Air Force does very well, despite the fact that they keep saying this is a priority. And I think maybe it is changing a little bit, but inherently people resist change everywhere you go. And the Air Force has that piled on with some bureaucracy that makes it really difficult to get anything changed or done. Motor has a lot of leeway in his construct that he's operating in, which I think is awesome and he'll talk about today, where he's able to very quickly innovate, pull things off the shelf, interact with industry and make things happen. Stuff that most units can't do outside of like special operations. So I think that's great. But a lot of this too, there's a lot of discussion in the background and a lot of hesitation because from my perception until talking to Motor, Pilot Training Next produced a product in six months. They went off to a fighter without ever going to a T-38 and they showed up their unit with considerably less time under their belt than a normal pilot training student. Fast forward 2019, 2020, the Air Force has lots of mishaps, several fatal mishaps, all involving young wingmen. So if you draw the conclusion and make some assumptions, right, fair or unfair there, it's easy to say, hey, we cut a lot of corners in pilot training, and now we're seeing a lot of mishaps because of it. Again, I don't think you necessarily can correlate the two, at least not with information I have, but it is interesting, and it at least drove my interest and concern in this topic. So I think Motor does a great job breaking down what pilot training next was, what UPT 2.5 is. I hope you enjoy this episode. And with all that being said, let's get into it finally with Motor. Recording, you know? I've only had to go to it once. Awesome. So, Motor, thanks for joining me on the podcast, man. It's good to have you on here, and I'm looking forward to catching up and really talking about pilot training next, slash UPT 2.5, because you're the guy who's kind of making it all happen. So, again, thanks for joining me on the podcast. We're rolling into it. But give everyone just kind of a quick snapshot of your background, who you are, and a little bit of what you're doing today. Yeah, Ryan, it's awesome seeing you again, man. Um, yeah, I'm Ryan Riley, go by motor. I've been flying F-16s primarily in my career. Um, it, I would say it was standard fighter pilot career and then kind of took a took a angled uh, detour, and it's been pretty crazy <laughs> since then. Uh, you know, did multiple tours in the Viper, combat deployments, whatnot, and then went to school um, right after we hung out in the Gamblers, and then um, went to staff, and then uh, ended up doing some... Uh, weird integration stuff, you know, with, um, our fine fix finish, uh, problem sets as far as in their air operation centers, 
I got to do some exercise stuff to really kind of to figure out how our whole government works. Um, and then from there, I got pulled in to do some of this innovation stuff, uh, Squadron Next, which was a, a general posture initiative for like the squadron of the future. And then, then we inherited Pilot Training Next, and now it's been full-time Pilot Training Next. So um, I, I like to say that I find really smart people and capable people that are bigger brains than me and let them run. And uh, that's how PTN is getting built right now. So I'm just the talking. I'm the, I'm the figure. I get to talk. Yeah. Well, you got the talking stick, so yeah, it works you got out. It. Uh, I, will, I will say, for those who don't know, Pilot Training Next, UPT 2.5, we can break that down because I'm sure I'm crossing streams as far as different programs and how those things are used because I've been watching more or less from afar through social media. So there are some fighter pilot pages and just pilot-specific Air Force pages out there where the Air Force is trying to you know produce information so that the masses know, just another way of disseminating it. But a big piece of this, which has been years in the making, and again, I know there's gonna be some crossing streams here, but from my, so this is my perception, yeah. right? And I think I'm the one each like fighter pilot on the other end who doesn't necessarily see all the details, but pilot training next, UPT 2.5, some initiatives that started a few years ago, which coincided or result of maybe tied to it, pilot retention, pilot production, we had a pump up the numbers, how to figure out a way to innovate, create more pilots. So the perception of the fighter squadron or the other, the end user more or less was, hey, we're doing these different programs. We're cutting a bunch of stuff out of the syllabi and we're just gonna try to put as many people through pilot training as possible. And we're gonna do new things or leverage technology to make up for giving them extra, giving them the normal amount of sorties that's been going on in pilot training since the 50s. So I would say it hasn't been, it doesn't seem like it's been a very warm welcome, at least from most people's perceptions. That said, I do know you have flown in combat with you. So if there's someone who can figure this stuff out. I know it's you. And I have had buddies who have gone out there and once they've seen what you're doing, they've come back and said, I believe. But I think we need to talk about this a little bit more and really kind of dissect it because there's a lot, there's potentially a lot of misnomers. Yeah. And again, I'm kind of one of those, like, I don't really know what it's about. And I don't know if I'm necessarily a believer yet because I haven't seen it with my eyes. So with that being said, can you kind of just talk about what pilot training next is, what UPT 2.5 is, yeah. and we can we can dive in. Yeah, so first of all, you know, the big thing is, you know, people can smell snake oil a mile away, right? And, you know, the biggest thing that I can do is, is and especially from the fighter community, uh, you know, being part uh, and background from the fighter community, I try to, number one, say, listen, like, I'm going to tell you the goods and the bads, and I'm going to tell you that I think doing nothing is the wrong answer. I've got a answer and it's may probably not the right one, but if we're on the path to getting that right answer, I think then that's where the the constructive discussion can go. I think when you get the people that are like, you know, the way I was taught is the best way and I don't want to hear about anything else. Then I go, that's not really aligning with the, uh, with the CSAPs, you know, accelerate change or lose mantra. And as being good fighter pilots and good stewards of, of protecting our democracy, I think we need to always be challenging ourselves to do better. Right, the moment we ever come back from a mission, go, dude, that's it. I I I reached it, and probably shouldn't be flying, right? And so I kind of take it from this. This is like a really challenging problem that we have in the Air Force, right? We have to solve. Um, you know, we have resource constraints, we have global engagement uh, stuff that we have to do, and and that's way above you know our pay grades, right? So, right, the pilot crisis is you know there's. Part of it, which you and Paco had discussed as far as there's a retention issue. And then there's, of course, the pilot production 
And so, you know, AETC, Education and Training Command, owns pilot training, right? And so pilot training is at least the production portion of this. But I look at like modernization, like in having an Air Force where we are giving the best quality of instruction, the best hardware, the best tools and tech. I think that also helps in the long run with retention. That it means it shows that we are investing in our future. We're investing in our current uh, cadre, our IP cadre. And you, you know, from your fate, fate background, just remember there's there's the grind, but there's also that sense yep. of accomplishment when you are getting somebody that gets it, the light goes on for the first time, right? All these things are really vitally important. I believe strongly in them. That's why I'm do what I do. So to, you know, pilot training next was started. I think the idea was kicked around in 2017, 2018. They got serious about it. And, um, it was one of several innovation, uh, debts that AETC had started and they put pilot training next, the initial cadre up at uh, Bergstrom Field up in Austin for a reason. They wanted it off of a military uh, base to just clean, clean, uh, clean slate design, right? I mean, think about pilot training in a completely different manner. Um, and that was great. There was a lot of, a lot of the, I would say, the bones of PTN that currently are going through and now starting to scale through um, UPT 2.5, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, that all started there. You know, those guys did awesome. Then that was part of, part of me showing up and part of a lot of the folks that are here at Debt24 doing that. And that was really exciting. Um, most of the tech that they were using was just commercially available, you know, gaming rigs, commercially available hardware, just put it all together, see how it works, right? Uh, and the whole, the thing was, it's an experiment. And and I think that that's a lot of what gets lost a little bit on the Facebook sometimes is they hear what I'm doing under this roof, which I have a sandbox. Like I get to, I get to play with stuff, you know, and I get to try to break the the stuff and see how it works in a military training environment in these small group tryouts, these experiments. So like PTN version one class was an experiment, right? And so what we get out of that, we look at what can scale, what what doesn't scale, what needs more work. And that helps inform scaling actions that the command's doing. I think the big thing that I try to highlight to people is like, don't get so hooked, hooked or wrapped around the axle about what I'm doing currently in, in debt 24 activities, which is wrapped into pilot train next. What we should be all be really excited about is that AETC is actively changing and modernizing. We're, we haven't modernized, uh, we've modernized hardware several times. Right, you know, when we switched to T thirty seven to T six early two thousands, that was a, was a modernization, but it was only a hardware modernization. We kept the grade sheets the same, we kept the the academics the same. I mean, shoot, we're still doing computer based training, right? CBT means you go to a computer yep. lab, you sit down at the computer lab, you do your little login, and you do that only there. We did that in the nineteen nineties because nobody had a personal computer, so you know. The fact that we're changing and modernizing is like, ah, yes, like I'm excited about that. And that's what I try to highlight to people that we're actively modernizing everything about UPT and we should be going, yes, this is the absolute what we need to do. How we do it matters absolutely in the details. So that's kind of like the impetus of two, uh, a PTN and really UPT 2.5 is what the, the folks in the fighter page and folks out there in the CAF and math, AFSOC, all that, they're going to see the product primarily of UPT 2.5 and through the pipeline versus what the few classes that I produced uh, with PTN. And so a couple, uh, there's a lot to digest and break down there. I think first is a, is a point that we all like tend to gripe and, and moan about 
how the Air Force just doesn't change or do things, but this is like one example of where they're trying to actually do stuff and embrace technology and make change. So I think that's a re- that's a really good thing. And like you said, like we have modern technology. I said it with Paco's podcast, like being a FAPE, you know, back then you couldn't let a student go to a sim or you couldn't go to an extra sim with them if they're having trouble in their yeah. ILS or whatever it might be because that'd be a syllabus deviation. And that's like, that's dumb. Like, why wouldn't you go spend time in a simulator, which would be cheaper if it was available and then save a ride later on? So there's that. So I, I think it's good. Some things that pop out, right? Like obviously this thing initially popped out um, and then through the bro network, I think, because I know I've heard it of, buddies who are teaching out at Holloman who have had some of the, the initial, I think it was the initial cadre of P, or the initial class of yep. PTN that went through. There were some like really mm-hmm. weak swimmers, according to them, they like barely made it through, but then they still made it through, right? That doesn't give any credibility or warm fuzzy to the program, what's going on. Um, I think it is important yeah. what you said, like this, this takes time. So I do have a question like, what is the timeline from like, all right, we started this in 2017 is UPT 3.0 going to be the final one? And we'll do 3.1, 3.2, just some updates as it goes along. Like what, what is the plan there to get to a point where it's a viable product? Because also in that too, you know, I think there were several mishaps last year. They were all mm-hmm. young wingmen, whether correlated to the syllabi yeah. changes and things like that. I, I think that's to be said and who knows, right? But like, people are looking from the outside, looking in, and they're seeing all these things happen, which are necessar- not necessarily positive things. And they yeah. you know, jump to conclusions, rightfully or wrongfully, that, hey, we're making a lot of sacrifices and cuts on training just to get production yeah. numbers out. So, so yeah, so there's a lot of, lot of, lot of impact there uh, from that perspective. So let's start with the PTN version one, two, and three classes, because I think that's really important. So the original... Um, go do was remember they were all up there TDY <clears throat> to Austin, uh, you know, so that meant that, you know, per the joint travel rig, they got to do it in 179 days. And so, you know, that first class, all the instructors and the students were all held to that 179 day limitation. So that was, I think, a, a one driver of, you know, can we do this in half the time with the T6 using modern technology and methodology, right? And so what I mean by that is, number of quality quality instruction. So there was a, a focused instructor development plan for each of these versions that our instructors go through. So it wasn't pulling just line IPs. It was line IPs and then saying, hey, let's talk about adult learning uh, theory. Let's talk about student-centered or learner-centered training. Let's, and, and really harness, because we have a lot of preconceived things that we do, you know, the whole like, hey, I, you know, at least when I went through UPT and even through, and really until I was like a major, like it was like, all right, I'm gonna think skinny and I'm not gonna ask a lot of questions in the brief. Maybe I'll do it in the pre-brief or the after over at the bar, but I'm gonna kind of be quiet because if I if I ask a question that makes me look stupid, then uh, they're gonna dig and then guess what? I'm gonna hook the rider. I'm gonna have to do this again. It wasn't until like my second or third like, you know, spin up as a major, you know, as a IP, you know, been down range a couple times and you know, like, hey man, I think it was like. Uh, I was trying to remember one of the guys I was flying with Shaw and he's like, I don't know, maybe we should do this again. I'm like, you know, what? I'm going to apply ACM like one more time in the next six months. I, you know, let's, let's do this one again. Right. And so the learner centric yeah. is really trying to empower our students to like, if you don't understand the question, please, I'd much rather take this time and even step late, 10 minutes late to get that light bulb to come on versus wasting a whole lot of JPA 
and both of us being a little frustrated on the backside of that. And, and that, that requires us to talk not less, but there's more of the, Hey, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. I'm going to tell you what you're probably going to mess up and we're going to go do this versus like, Hey, how, how I got to get in your brain. Even if I have 10, 15 minutes in the UPT environment, you know, in the fighter world, you get kind of spoiled with, you know, hour and a half brief, two plus hour debrief, right? You can, you've got the time. So how do we pull the perception, decision, execution, you know, errors and put that in a 10 minute, 15 minute format or 20 minute, whatever I have in UPT and use that. So, so from that perspective, there was a lot to, lot of, of, of PTN that is not just hardware. Cause you know, I think all too often we get trapped into the, it's shiny things. We are a force of widgets. We love our widgets, right? And I, and the widgets are important. We've got to have them, but we really, really need to invest in our warfighters, right? And so that for me is an investment paying forward is making sure our IPs, our instructors have um, more tools and they, and we have focus on that. So PTM version one uh, was, was 179 days. And then they did uh, send the fighter bound folks to Kelly for a couple of additional Viper rides. Uh, and then they went to their FTUs. Um, and we did have a, a couple, we had one, uh, cell phone. So one said, Hey, I'm not ready for this to follow on. And then one did wash out. And those are the only washouts, uh, for the entire program. And then you have a lot of, uh, version two, um, again, each time the methodologies changed and updated. So we learned from our mistakes, you know, um, failing fast. And then we did version two, uh, and then we did version three. Version three was the only version that had a, a modern cockpit. So we had the T6Bs that we borrowed from the Navy. Uh, and then we had them, especially a, a software kick from Textron. And so we had a uh, synthetic F-16 radar, a synthetic um, air to air, air to ground throat reaction capability, moving map display, et cetera. So really we didn't get to try what was a truly envisioned in the early days of PTN until version three, which was, you know, 2020. So, um, and we can talk about that a little bit, but, you know, since version one, two, and three, and then post stuff that we've done, um, have all, I would say, you know, below average to above average, um, and F-35s have done really well. Fortune fighters is pretty tough. They tend to do average to slightly below average. Um, and then our mobility and, um, and our special operations have been all, I would say, trending average-ish, but, uh, we have some, some really uh, stellar performers, as well as, you know, some ones that have struggled through it, um, which I have to remind everybody we are, we're putting through, we take at least for the last few years, we take just the normal distribution of student capability. So you're going to have bottom, middle and top third, no matter what, what you fly. Right. So PTN version one, I guess it's probably, I guess, have you seen a progress like one, two yeah. and three? I know there, you know, there's standard average there, but has there been improvement? So like in version one with two being eliminated and then a mix, or is it two? I mean, is, is that, I mean, doesn't yeah. seem like enough data points there to probably capture that, but yeah, so, is there at least a subjective yeah, feeling that it's better? You know, again, when you have a, you know, we've done three versions of PTN and then we've done um, uh, an advanced top off. We took 2.5 student graduates from the first couple uh classes from UPT 2.5, which I'll talk about in a bit. And then we put them through the, the, the last half of uh, PTN, which would be the advanced, the fighter bomber fundamentals course and the air mobility fundamentals course. Um, and I would say each time we do this, our tech is better. 
our knowledge is better and our, our just, you know, executing is better. So I would say the quality of instruction is definitely better each time we do it. And from that portion, you know, we've got a very small denominator. But again, when we look at 2.5, you know, the de denominators every three weeks advance, you've got UPT 2.5 students starting, right? And you've got 2.5s here at Randolph in a smaller capacity. So that denominator is going to grow rapidly. Uh, and that scaling is the most important thing. So, yeah, I would say overall, like I, I hand track each of our graduates, you know, to see how they're doing the pipeline. I've tracked people to Kunsan and to, you know, and they're um, overseas and whatnot. And again, a lot of it's subjective, um, but I like to hear in the early days, they're like, yep, these are the deficiencies. And, and I think people think, well, hey, we don't want to hear that. No, I, I need to hear that. Like, hey, your grads, yeah, they're doing, they're doing fine. That's great. That's not really useful when we're, right. when we're doing, you know, DevOps, I need the pros and the cons. I need to do that. Otherwise I can't, I can't update. And I think what people sometimes forget and when we're in innovation space, like I make the change, I, I make it that, I mean, we make it like, there's no like staff courting for a half a year and all this stuff. We just make it and then we do it. And that's what, that's what informs the scaling oh, nice. of UPT 2.5 and some of the other Powertrain transformation initiatives. So overall, I'd say, you know, I'm, I'm proud of some, uh, we've had some really stellar performers. We've had some folks we've gone, we sent people to C5, C17, 135, 130s, 130Js, um, B2, um, what else? B52, uh, F15 Strike Eagle, F16, F35. So, uh, and then, oh yeah, U28, I'm forgetting a bunch. So we've, we've cross-pollinated uh, purposely, and I would say in also very similar fashion as UPT. Nice. I mean, you don't even fly the F35, so that should be an easy one, right? Right, like, right. It yeah. does all for you. Um, <laughs> so, again, would this be a fair statement to look at it from my perspective and probably yeah. the bro's perspective? If we went ahead and wrote off PTN one, two, and three, hey, those were learning iterations. Like obviously those people still exist and they're out there in the CAF and math and apps like doing things. Um, but those were the, and some good, some great, probably some not so great. But now like the focus is all those lessons learned have been poured into UP 2.5. Is that a fair way of looking at it? Yes, I would say the verses one through three were, were exactly what they were supposed to be. They were a prototype. They were development prototyping a clean slate designed approach to powertrain and as such that's why i protect them uh as far as like making sure that when they hit the obviously when they show up their units people are gonna say hey where'd you go to randolph and you're like oh i went to austin like you know people are gonna figure that out real quick but i want to yeah, protect them as far is. as first so within their their you know we don't have that micro like scope on them their entire career um because we want to we want to track them but we want to learn um UPT 2.5, um, when you look at the things that matter out of, and, and these are the things that I want to highlight from PTN's perspective, quality instruction and an acceptable student to instructor ratio, that really matters, right? We have to make sure that we're being efficient with our human humans teaching. Modernizing our approach to learning, competency-based training, um, student-centric, and then coach-athlete. What we mean by that, and a lot of people go, whoa, whoa, so hold up, I can't hook a student? No, no, no. Quality has never changed. We still have to retain the bar, the standard, the standard that you remember as a FAPE, like you've got to re retain that, especially when we start doing new changes to the system, right? So when you make a change to how we teach, we've got to know, we know, 
we know what the standard is, right? When you graduate a T6 graduate or a T38 or T1 graduate, there is, you know, we have minimum standards, right? And we have course training standards that have to adhere to it. As long as we keep that and we hold the bar, then then we're, then we're I'd say, we can keep that trust with our match comps and our, because really remember the CAF, the MAF, and SOF are our, our customer. Um, with that, things like, I'm going to talk to, you know, like, Remember academics, dude, I didn't drink coffee until I went to the B course and it was death by PowerPoint for eight hours a day at Luke. And I literally couldn't stay awake. Like I just, uh, I'm monkey brain, man. I'm like, I, you, you, you gotta keep it exciting for me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, no, you know, do same, do same. Yeah. Did you have a pit in my eye? If I have to go sit through like engine academics, followed oh, yeah. by FCR, yeah, it was or radar it theory. Is. I'm like, day oh, day I mean, it's, it's stuff you need to know, but yeah, holy moly. Right. right. Um, where did I really learn the yeah. radar theory? Was sitting in the the sim, right, in the air to ground mode, and they actually made us do like offset right. offsets, aim points, and all that fun stuff. So my point, yeah. <laughs> what are those? I'm showing. I know. I'm You're so much. <laughs> um, but what we're doing is like, for example, in PTN, what we we jailbroke the the academics and we allowed uh, the students to access it. You could do it on your iPad, on your home computer. We gave VR rigs uh, to the to them to take home and whatnot. So we learned a lot from that. So the academics, how you present academic content, can we free up some of the the um, civilians, flight or instructors, the CSIs? Can we free up some of the time that they have to spend foot stomping and telling us what we need to learn versus just doing self-paced? Um, that's where a lot of the adult learning and how we keep the the content fresh in our memory. That's really really important. So it's not just what we fly and how we fly, it's it's really how we present information. I have a couple of questions with that. So scalability, obviously we have a pilot retention crisis. I think, well, I don't think it's a crisis as Paco said, yeah. we just took the crisis off and like problems fixed. So, uh, but you know, scaling it with doing that kind of what seems to be a very much more close knit kind of interaction between instructor and student, which have been a fape, like there's just, yeah. I mean, it's busy, you know, if you, your uh, survival mode. So I definitely remember that being a challenge and granted, I know things have probably changed, but probably not that much, uh, especially for ramping up production. So how, how does that get solved in this equation here? Um, and then I would like to talk, you know, is the goal too, is it leverage technology and then remove actual flying from the syllabi? Cause what I'm seeing too, is like, Hey, you're doing T6 only T6 IFF. And then straight to the Viper. Like maybe mm -hmm. that maybe that is a great thing. Maybe it's not. I definitely remember my first T thirty eight ride going yep. from the T six to the T thirty eight, and I was still sitting on the end of the runway. I think when we got into airspace. So, um, you know, it's just it's it's different. And not saying that you couldn't scale that in a Viper or whatever you know next platform yeah. they might be moving on to. But I think those are some of the things that pop into my mind. Now also. Anecdotal throw in there, you know, like Mezzer's mishap, never yep. having gone to the tanker, shows up to a CAF unit. How many CAF instructor pilots are qualified really, like, you know, are B course level instructors when it comes to getting onto the boom? Because probably like most people, like me getting onto the boom for the first time was a, it was a significant emotional yeah. event. So, you know, cutting things out of the syllabus, that's the perception when I hear UPT yep. 2.5 or PTN. So, and again, I know that's, yeah. that's, this map was in oranges there, so not completely fair, but that, that's definitely a concern. So 
how does the technology solve that problem? Well, does it? number one, it, it can't. It has to be a holistic approach, right? I mean, we just can't throw technology at this problem. So, I'll work backwards, target backwards uh, on this because two point five is really important to understand that when the when the when the B course gets a two point five graduate that goes to T thirty eights, which that syllabus has been modified to accept the additional competencies that they show up with, they're coming with a hundred T six hours about 95 to 100 and change so let's just call it a round number because i keep things simple 100 hours ubt yeah, currently slow. you know the non 2.5 i think it's around 80 ish 85 so that's an additional 15 yeah. hours and and then what i also told people with ptn it also applies for 2.5 it's not just the hours it's how we're using those hours that's really really important so we have this mission phase so like when you have to put it all together in ubt 2.5 it's all it's called the mission phase so instead the block training that we went through where it's like okay we're going to do loops to music well no music that follows later in our career loops to music uh (laughs) then come back to instruments and then you do formation low level nav right and then but once you graduate like it's no like oh we're going to put it all together and you're going to well with 2.5 it's it's more like what i think makes sense to you and i as far as we're going to brief a two ship we're going to take off. We're going to go to the MOA. We're going to do two ship um, basic formation. There, we're then going to do a flight split in flight, and we're going to proceed to separate approaches. And then we're going to land at an outbase. We're going to rebrief. We're going to do two ship ta- uh, two ship low level, then back up to the MOA for a flight split or up initial or whatever, right? And it's over. I mean, so these these check rides are not what we went through, right? And so where it's like, I don't care anything else. It's formation today. I am on for formation. And so um, what we're seeing is you have to build, I think it it forces the airmanship decisions that really you didn't see until, I mean, if we're calling a spade a spade, I mean, until you had a red flag or like you have to take a Viper off base and like go or you're downrange and you're like, how do I get from keypad X to Y? That's where the airmanship is really developed. I mean, as far as, because like if you take off, uh, at the same place, you go to the same airspace you always go to. Right? I mean, you've seen it. Like people even look at their in-flight guides; they have them there, but they have everything memorized. That's not airmanship. Yeah. That's repetition, right? And I think we need to be very specific with what we call airmanship. And repetition, you can get a lot of people to do a, a one thing or two things in repetition. What real airmanship is, and and this is, I think, me personally from watching this here at this level, and also being in the CAF, I think airmanship is when. I have a set of tools, I have a toolkit, and I am applying them in a unique way that I've never been taught specifically. So I am in a situation I've never been in before, but because I have these tools, I can take them and use them in a way I've never really actually done before and make a safe, smart decision that uh, that allows me to uh, complete the mission. But that's really what airmanship's about. Um, it, it, it's about it being in a dynamic environment. We can't script everything. And so when you remove some of the scripting from UPT and you'll let the students choose a little bit more, choose your own adventure with, I would say with the training wheels, right? Cause that's what we apply. You let them learn and yeah. we've got to shift the mentality of just hammering them like, Oh man, dude, this is, woo, this is a really push up scenario, man. I don't think this is going to go well. Like that, that's not setting them up for success, right? If, I want to kind of like reward risk taking. Like we talk about, we talk about making smart decisions and risk. Well, yeah. we have to breed that into our product from day one. So if someone comes up and goes, 
here's my generic one each plan. And this other student comes up and goes, hey, I got this push-up plan, but I, I'm a little uncomfortable with X. Where do you think me as an instructor is going to be like motivated? Where's my motivation going to be? Let's do some learning. Let's go after the hard, yeah. that hard one. Yeah, no joke. And, and you know, if you, if you swing and miss, okay, if it's end of block, there are triggers, just like we have in normal UPT. There's triggers that are associated. But if it's not, man, that's a learn. That's a learning point that we can use, right? And then things also to think about uh, pilot training uh, in general is, you know, we never would proficiency advance somebody, right? Because it's you're taking training away from a student. They go to a check ride, they don't do well. You're taking away, right? Well, think about something like banking, proficiency reallocation, really important, right? Because now, let's say someone shows up with a couple hundred hours in their instrument rating and and They've got the basic aircraft control stuff down pretty doped. Let's go, let's go take something. You know what they haven't seen? They haven't seen formation. They haven't seen low-level navigation the way we fly in the Air Force. So let's let's bank that and then reapply it if they if they struggle later. Let's reapply it there. And then there's there you remove the stigma from the instructor perspective of setting your student up for failure later by taking something away that you can't give back. So these are the cons I'm throwing a lot at you, right? But this is what 2.5 is in essence yeah. doing and what PTN has done in the past. To me, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, especially, I mean, you're getting more T6 hours, which is a cheap platform, especially yep. eventually you've got the T6B or, you know, C or whatever it's going to be where you have advanced avionics in it. But doing that missionized phase, that's the first I've heard of it. But doing like that is a, complex thing i actually did it as a student we did a two shift to the moa to an out base and back right yeah. um and that was like a big deal like thinking through because you're used just like to the airspace and back and the only reason we did that was timeline constraints yeah. and trying to make stuff up um to knock multiple sorties out but it was it was super rare to do that but being seeing those problem sets early on i definitely think or additive and making yeah. it better, right? And you're having to solve more things. And it's more of how we operate in the CAF and MAF anyways. Um, I do think, you know, just hearing you, you describe it in my mind, just like I'd chop pilot training next yeah. away. Again, I know those people exist, but again, that was kind of like the learning experience and I'm sure they're gonna go have great careers, but really it seems like the line in the sand to start measuring it would be 2.5 and seeing the graduates, how they perform in the B course, how they perform going on to, you know, into the math and things like that. How far along, I mean, where, where are we in the pipeline yes. of 2.5? So the first 2.5 grads that, that actually hit the street at an FTU came from, from through my doors. So they graduated UBT 2.5 at Randolph with okay. the same hours we talked about, about a hundred hours. We then put them through a T6B fighter bomber fundamental course for the fighters and then an air mobility fundamentals course in the, uh, using a simulator platform and then send them to FTU. So that was the first, again, so that's still a one-off weird kind of path, right? And it's only gonna apply for less than 20 people total. Um, what, what people should be watching very keenly on is the 2.5 students that go to T38s and T1s and then go to their FTUs because it's additive, right? For let's, so for the, you know, the longest, I'd say pipeline is gonna be your fighter pipeline. So, you know, you get about a hundred hours and you get another about 80, 90, 85-ish hours in T38s and then you'll go to IFF, right? I think that's gonna change and this is a little bit of vision casting, but I think, you know, the T7 is a really capable platform, but it's gonna take a long time to get in numbers that will actually 
change again how many people were pushing through. You know, it's just like the T37 to T6 on rapid took a long time. So, you know, I think people try to jump to go, oh, the T7 yeah. is going to solve all these problems and it's way better training platform. It's great. I mean, but we're only going to get a couple uh, in the next couple of years. And then and then the, as the pipeline starts producing, we'll see. It's going to be like a 10-year period. It's a, long, it's a long time. It You know, it's not just one year we're flying 38s and the yep. next move we're all in T7s, right? So, um, well, I mean, it only took 21 years to get the KC-46 refueling a Viper, so. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, right. It. And so so for us, I think the T6 platform is going to be additive. Um, a lot of the, I think the, ref, you know, the reflex that's coming from the folks that you've talked to and whatnot is there in the past, there have been training cuts, right? As far as a syllabus change that reduced something, there was something lost, right? And so I think it's really important, well aware of, of, Hours are, are precious, but training time under instruction is actually, I think, equally important. Like, if I can't fly you 200 hours, because I can't, but I can fly you whatever hours I have available in the plane, but then I can also rep things that are repable in a, in a low-cost training platform, that's, that's additive, right? Like, so, you know, a lot of people called out PTN when we started selling people at five on their fifth flight. We're selling them in a T6. And then I was like, well, I think this is still doable in 2.5. And guess what? 2.5 started selling students around ride five because we have tools instead of a yeah. plunger and a, and a black and white or now color, right? Color um, <laughs> two-dimensional representation yeah. of your plane. You can do the chair flying, which I still think is important because I think chair flying is sort of like um, like closing your eyes and really thinking through something is like reading a book. Your your mind is building the pictures, right? So it's it's a very active process. Whereas, you know, when you watch TV, it's more passive, right? So I think there's a there's a very specific use for chair flying, but I think there's also a very specific use for jumping in a low-cost trainer that you can just go rep. For example, kids struggling with fencing, just running fence. Let's go do that real quick. Let's run it. Hey, okay, yeah. let's try it again. Hey, now now you've got a little weather. Run fence again. Or, hey, you're going to run your A-Doctor Who's or whatever, your D-Lids or whatever. You can rep that quickly and actually make them dial in the yeah. stuff and go, okay, hey, here, here, let's try this. And then you go fly it. All the way to, I would say, talk about like a two-ship tack formation scenario where, you know, it's fence in and there's specific requirements and, and parameters that you have to do just for your GX. I mean, how often has that gotten messed up? That's where this works really, really well. Now, our high-dollar right. simulators, the multimillion-dollar simulators, are have a a another use. They are they're an OFP. They represent the plane. And so, when I need to fly complex EPs, sort of like our PTO Shaftfield, the you know the Viper, that kind of stuff, that needs to be in the actual full up. The best training device that I can get for that is going to be the the full up simulator, DCA, repping DCA. I mean, remember in the Block Fifty, like where was the real learning taking place? It wasn't on our four four V two because we had two dropout as red air. And right. oh, by the way, the two guys you're flying with are the the two newest MQTers, MR certed guys. Like, you know. So I think the spectrum of devices is really important. Yep. And that's what we're trying to build. We don't have that solved, right? I I can't tell you that, hey, we've got we've got we've got it all dope for you. Don't worry about it. Like that's a that's a work in progress to have that spectrum of devices. But that includes your iPad, your EF your electronic flight bag. Via iPad, it, it Oculus walkthrough trainer. 
anything like that is going to be part of the spectrum. And we just want more, we want more ways to communicate complex things. Oh, that's awesome. I think you've already dispelled some of the myths that I had. So that's awesome. Uh, I'll give you that. Because there are some perceptions, I think my generation, I saw it, you know, 2012, 2013 mm -hmm. in the T6 world where they were cutting things out of the syllabus. They cut uh, tack formation out of the syllabus. They cut out extended trail. And then I think it even got worse as I left. Like if you were going to go to T1s, like you weren't going to do extended, or you weren't going to do formation. You were going to do a very rudimentary formation, yeah. formation, like fingertip and that's it. Um, which you know, view is like, hey, that's airman. You know, you're developing airmanship. You're, you're putting more tools in your tool bag. Yeah. Whether that was like the right tools we put in the tool bag, that's what you can argue. And it sounds like UVT 2.5 and what you guys are doing are trying to like, hey, let's get the right tools and the right reps in the tool chest. Because it still sounds like it's about a year. If you're doing 100 hours in the T6, about 80 hours in the T38, that's, it was about 110 hours in the 38 and 80 hours in the T6 previously, correct? Uh, you know, for the specifics, I'd have to look at, you know, the staff's got those metrics, but it, the yeah. 38, nothing's been reduced in the 38, like as far as for a 2.5 okay. grad. So it's all been added. So the only add is really in the T6 world. And that's about seven-ish months, um, depending. Again, it's a really new syllabus. So there's definitely some growing pains associated with like, um, for example, the syllabus flow, right? And so, um, you know, syllabus is either top to down or left to right, right? And it's only the, and then the branches are what you're opted for. Well, right. the the 2.5 syllabus is there's a lot more squiggly lines, a lot more op you're opted earlier for more things or more variety of things. And it's up to the flight commander and below really to kind of dial in what's right for the student and when. So where we normally hit weather stops, weather stops should be less of an impact now because you should have more of that palette of options of what a student's opted for. And that's, I think really cool. You know, I, I look to the civilian side, you know, I, I'm active in general aviation, been since I was like in high school, like, and so, you know, the civilian world is all competency based, right? If, if you're that doctor or that lawyer that has no air sense whatsoever, and if you're a doctor or lawyer, I apologize. I use that only in the test case that you're not a, you're not a professional aviator. Okay. So for you just love flying, you got the flying bug and you're like, Hey, I want to become a pilot and you have no business in the cockpit. As long as you have money and a desire and a CFI willing to fly you, you can, you'll be in the training pipeline for as long as you want. I think the key right. thing that makes, makes it challenging for us in the Air Force is we're producing professional airmen. We're pr producing professional aviators. And so what that means is we have a time and a resource constraint. You do have to get this in a certain amount of time or we get to the point where we can no longer uh, put resources towards you. And that's when we wash out students. So the washout's still going to occur. There's no such thing as like, you know, walking through like, you know, the coach athlete. Well, I don't know what sports you guys played, but I remember face masks, you know, the whole like coach in my face, like get your stuff together. Yeah. I'm not talking about that either, but what I'm saying is it's not, we're not coddling. I, I want to make sure that's really clear that, that we are putting, we're not training for global war and terror. I, that's not the mission set that we need to be focused on the pipeline. And when I mean the pipeline from the time of the sessions, all the way till you're flying combat or you're combat capable has to be focused on peer level threats. And that means ill-defined problems with resource constraints and with probably communication problems where you're gonna have to make mission type command decisions uh, with the best of imperfect information, right? And I mean, I think that's the best thing that we can strive to do 
that we've got to start that from day one. So is the goal of PTA or is the goal of UPT 2.5 to produce better pilots or is it to produce more pilots faster? Yeah. Or is that fair? Uh, you know, that's complex, right? I mean, from, from my level, like what, why I've been trying to help with the, the solution aspect is I'm trying to figure out how to become more efficient. I think that's my, like what debt 24 is trying to do is trying to modernize and buy back efficiencies. But right now our, our limiting factor is, you know, is humans. Like we've got a lot of planes, but we, we have, you know, the ACC, AMC, AFSOC, they supply us primarily with instructors. And of course, then we have first assignment instructors, right? That we, that we retain for a few years, but we also have a civilian, um, a civilian instructor, um, shortage as well. Right. So a lot of the places that, um, and I think that's somewhat generational. And I think that's, that, that's my personal thought is like, you know, 20 years ago, a lot of folks, if you retired out of Laughlin or you retired out of Altus, you're like, ah, cool. I, I don't really don't want to move. And my family's, yeah, we kind of like it here. Yeah, I'll do the, I'll do the CSI thing. Um, I think generationally yeah. <clears throat> what we're seeing with folks is they're, they're willing to move more even as a civilian and they're, you know, they're willing to do, they want to live where they want to live versus where the job may be. Um, and so that those are all way above like what I can help change. Um, but I think again, a, a unique way of problem solving this is, Hey, let's, in my unit, we're looking at uh, remote simulator instruction. Right. And so we're prototyping like, Hey, how would we do remote simming? Like, and, and right there, technically we can do this. Like we can do this commercially available stuff. It's super easy. Now retrofitting our, our legacy architecture is going to take some time, but that's another way to free up, I would say, bandwidth or give another option for our commanders to make decisions on manning and resources. So UPG 2.5, General Wills has said quality or higher, equal quality or better, faster, if able, later down the pipeline. So we've got to get it right with the methodology first for the the quality of instruction. And he's he's been very specific on we must retain that quality. And then if we can figure out how to use the... Um, and get more efficiencies and speed that's going to be there we're doing a lot of things with the t1 um you know as far as uh, some direct uh, there's a civilian path to wings alternate and accelerated path to wings and i'm you know these are going to be way outside my lane as far as for details but right. basically imagine using if we've got some really highly capable people um that have you know cfii atps or whatever and they come through we can maybe use the t1 in a non-traditional manner I think things like that will help with some of the numbers overall. But, you know, again, from where I am at, at PTN, I'm really trying to just get us to do with what we have. We got to make it, we got to make it count a little bit more. Yeah. Well, that was kind of like, it's like you read my mind a little bit. I have a neighbor who's a T1 instructor who just retired out at uh, Randolph. And I think he saw one of those programs, which he was not a big fan mm -hmm. of. He wasn't a believer. And again, all these things, I want to make sure it's, I guess, a clear, I want to be fair to UPT 2.5 because it'd be cool to see it, but it does sound like with the added a piece, the missionized aspect of it, like that's, that's gotta be a, a plus. I just feel like it, not seeing it, but hearing yeah. it, it sounds like it's a plus. So I don't want to do a disservice because yeah, he was, he ended up retiring out of basically just not believing in, in this program. Yeah. Um, and so I know there's things and it was above our pay grade. I think it's important about you know point out and I think long range like you're in the weeds day in and day out trying to make all this stuff happen 
and efficiencies. The big picture is I, I do think it's, I mean, it's a numbers game. Like we got to get more pilots through yeah. the pipeline. That's everyone, like civilian, military, like everyone's trying to figure that out. Um, so be curious, it'd be interesting to see in a few years yeah. if the Air Force is able to figure it out. And if you're able to do 100 T6 hours or whatever that ends up becoming without removing stuff and produce a pilot in nine months, that's awesome. Um, and I think it's one of those things that'll be interesting to see. And that's where I think a lot of people are like kind of, kind of hesitant yeah. about it, but it seems like it's going, it's like the right stance at least taken in on the current path it's at right now. Yeah. And that's what I'm challenging anybody that's associated with training I, all the way through teaching an MR wingman. So, you know, our, our brand new IPs, if, if you look at the calf, the pro, uh, what they're dealing with right now is, is the, is because we have such high turnover, you know, you're making instructors at least at the FT locations at 500 hours, 400 hours, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty young in their weapon system, right? And so from my perspective, um, we are all going to have challenges in our pipeline and all of the pipeline, uh, at least from the fighter flow, um, has been pretty stagnant for a long time. Like our FTU B course and, and F, F-16s was largely based off of what we did with F-4s, you know, and F-4s prior to that with, you know, and so those are iterative steps. Um, but look at how much the Vipers changed since I've, I've been flying. I flew green screen, what, 20 steer point block 25s, you know, and then I left flying, you know, I just remember our, our wingmen struggling with basic like deconfliction, right? Because we're doing a, a seed OCA seed push, right? And like I have six displays on two four by four screens <laughs> and a hell of a amount of sight. And and these students, man, that's we're asking a lot, you know, and, and how we change the um the air to air game plan. I mean, the expectations are very, very different. And I think that we have to adjust our training methodology to task saturate and task load our students earlier and more often. Because I mean, and I still think this applies in a KC forty six. I mean, you look at the KC forty six you brought up earlier, I mean, that's a really advanced plane. They have a lot of capability that has nothing to do with being a tanker, right? I mean, it has to do with being part of right. the overall force packaging. And so we're asking a lot that wasn't built into our training pipeline. And so does that mean that I need to take somebody into T6 and, you know, make them do a full up 3-1 uh, you know, replication? No, no. But for example, on a low level, how many times is a FAPE to go, hey, dude, pop up a uh, missile right three o'clock? break left like just to get the kid to just move the plane that's a win okay yeah. okay i don't need you to do all the stuff because you're gonna do that more in 30 it's it's that building a block approach right but if we can socialize and force them to make airmanship decisions earlier where they're in a safe spot then i think that's ultimately where we need to go but you're right the numbers are the numbers and, and i also you know watching the facebook uh flow and a lot of this stuff sometimes i'm like i, I don't know what to say because i mean i I get it, right? I mean, we all get it. Like, we have to produce pilots. And so there are global requirements that our force must adhere to, you know, as far as for the joint force and, and to support the national security strategy and, and what we do as Americans. And so we have to look at that as well because um, not producing enough pilots is also putting our force at risk. It might not be today that it's putting it at risk, but it is putting it at risk in the future. And I think that's where I think everyone I think that's where the emotion comes from a lot of times that people go, well, hey, well, 
you know, if you just give me a ton of people or you don't give me people, I, I'm, what do you want me to do either way? And I, I, I understand that. I would just say that what I'm showing with, I have a lot, I've had Holloman, I've had Luke, I've had Eglin, I've had a lot of folks in the fighter community come through. Uh, General Wills has been really great about saying, hey, if you want to see this, come, come out here. And so I extend the offer to you, man, the next time you come through here, you know, we'll show yeah. you because um, what I say is what we're doing here in PTN is, I think, really cool. It's fun. It's, it's awesome to solve really hard problems. But I also say, look at how we're, how we're approaching. So I do non-traditional acquisitions. I have direct, uh, I do sell business, innovative research, SIBRs. I do collaborative research agreements. We do all kinds of crazy stuff. Like if we have idea to like try something, we can do it like 30 days, right? And so how we interact, like I get to talk directly with industry. And so when I bring some industry partner on, it's not like, hey, you know, I want you to give me this widget. And this capability and they'll be like cool two years and x dollars will yeah. come back to you because you know what's going to happen dude is by the time that comes back well it won't be me that they bring it back to it'll be like two right. me's you know replacements yeah. and this guy is going to be this guy or guy is going to be like what what is this that you just gave me yeah right and so what we do is i i roll the sleeves up and we get to work so we work collaboratively with with um with our partners we're building this um for our air mobility fundamentals sim simulated course, we're building a side-by-side -side virtual T1 that's mixed reality and full motion, right? That, I mean, we can't yeah. go buy that. And it's four companies, four Here, companies and us building that. Here's, here's the thing, because that all sound, that sounds so awesome. Yep. Uh, but again, I, can, I mentioned it earlier, you know, like Paco with his newsletter, he, it was, I think it was last week's or newsletter, and it kind of diagrammed out this, uh, the, uh, KC46, yep. the procurement, and, you know, no kidding, you know, is going through the bidding process. And obviously this is a much bigger problem than even, you know, at the four-star level, like that's what they're dealing with, the, our procurement process. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see, you know, when does, and I, did, and I did the MC12 bit yeah. too, which was, it kind of fit this model, like go get off the shelf stuff, like do what you need to do to get it done. You know, a commander could write a check and procure whatever he needed, especially in the beginning. You know, it's like you, you hope, like, I know there is a trigger point when it trips into the, the normal way of doing business. Yeah. It's like, you hope it's, it's like set up and dialed in. Um, because I think, yeah, I remember when I, get, I got the first F-35 brief out at um, uh, Nellis. And this was 2013. And yeah, they just stood up the weapon school and they were kind of talking, you know, they're talking about the, the targeting yeah. pod, you know, the contract. Like, yeah. Well, it's a, you know, it's worse than a sniper because it's 2003 specs, but we got to wait to the, you know, the next iteration to write that in the contract. So, um, it's, that sounds amazing. It's, it'd be amazing if that's how we functioned with everything. You know, yeah. But. You buy risk with that. And so, you know, Rain, I would say just from that perspective, I, to put it in a little bit more perspective, uh, 1999, when I was a uh, freshman at the air force Academy, Back yeah, in the day. they talked about how all of us were going to fly F-35s like, Oh, you're going to fly F-35s, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, because and they briefed us, and it is exquisite technology. The F-35 just simply does things the F-16 just can't do, right? And and same with yeah. the Raptor, right? I mean, so when you talk about amazing, amazing capability, and yes, you you bring up the 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 um the the sensor pod, right? But there's a whole lot of other stuff that's like, oh my gosh, eye-wateringly amazing. That's gonna take time. But like, for example, the MC-12, there was risk associated with that. Very similar to the U-28. When you just buy a PC-12 and strip it out for the first couple iterations, you're going to take some risk doing that. But guess what? 
commander's intent and risk were were balanced, and that made sense for the MC12 mission. I think. I, I mean, you know it better than I do, but I think that was very that was a good blend of operational risk management and fast procurement. It also is like I mean, it's a good blend. It sounds like I mean, I'm not in the office there with you, but if you botch something, they know who they're coming for, you know. Or if you yeah. do well, like it's going to be it's you, right? Like you see, like good things come to fruition underneath your your command timeline or bad things right versus yeah. the guy who's there two years later like you he bought the risk and he doesn't even know it yet but when he shows up in two years like what is this crap pie that i just got handed and so i mean that, that is that's like down the rabbit hole and i know but so it is yeah. cool that you're able to go out there and work directly with industry and procure things that you see like hey if we leverage this technology or if we tweak this we can get X, Y, or Z. So I, I mean, that's that's awesome because normally it would not work that yeah, way. Yeah, and so we we actually can move the ball forward much faster by doing that. And so it's been really cool. We started with just commercially available software, and that that trainer that I just told you about. We're literally on the cutting edge. We're pushing the boundaries of what technically hasn't been done yet, and doing it with industry. And by the way, it because I'm associated with every step of the way. I know if I'm staying on timeline, I'm falling behind what my contracting mechanisms are. I have a lot more control, but it's easy to do with the hardware, right? I, I think hardware and software are the two things that, that are easy to do. The harder, the more time consuming one is taking academics like the the PowerPoints and building it in such a manner that you and I just don't go, oh, like how fast can I click yeah. through this, right? And so, you know, like my wife, dude, she she's an amazing, act. she loves academics. Like if you're like, hey, would you like to get your doctorate? She'd be like, oh my gosh, it'd be amazing, right? You tell me that I'm like, uh, uh-uh. like I want to go fly. I want to do something nope. like, like with my hands, I want to do something. And so how do you, how do you build academics that can keep people like us engaged? Um, you know, I think that's really, really important. So there's so much stuff within this and like, we just started on this path again, kind of wrapping it back to what we talked about an hour ago is I'm just excited that we are actively empowered to start changing pilot training for the better right and there's going to be there's going to be things that aren't going to work like and i think the biggest thing that i can tell for folks especially in the fighter community that haven't seen this like if you ever come through randolph come out swing by here swing by the 559th or the 560th you know and and or the 435th but iff and and go check out what they're doing what they're hearing because each step of the pipeline is looking has different problems right you know what affects the t6 doesn't affect the 38 which won't affect the t7 you know so and the t1 is a whole nother thing you know so the big thing is what's worse doing nothing because oh by the way when i took over to a little over two and a half years ago i pulled i had the historian pull a t38 grade sheet from 1968 it's the oldest i could get i was 68 or 65 you know so it was vietnam yeah. vietnam era i kid you not and i posted it next to a t6 and a t38 current grade sheet in tins 90 percent the same 90 percent. I, I believe it i mean because I, yeah. I, I mean that was one of my biggest gripes i think leaving active duty right there's it there's so much resistance to change um and we can kind of transition because i mean i saw demo right like first world yeah. problems right i mean just like doing a photo shoot yeah it, it was just in, the insanity that it took to get through there and the hoops you had to jump through and like apples and oranges that like doesn't even count compared to the problems you're trying yeah. to work through now but there's there's so much resistance to change that it's cool to hear that people are finally embracing the fact that maybe we can 
leverage technology and do things maybe slightly different that are maybe more efficient. And I get it. You you got to take some licks yeah. and have some, you got to stumble here and there. And I think that's probably a lot of the perception I've had is I've, you, everyone talks about yeah. the failures, right? Like no one's telling me like, Hey, we had these PTNers come through Holloman and they were amazing. Well, right. Cause no one yeah. goes through it. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's amazing B course, but yeah. Um, that's cool. That's cool. To yeah. Hear. It's been, it's been a, a, a crazy ride, you know, it's been a lot of fun too. I will say, all right. So I got one more thing about UPT 2.5, unless you want to talk about anything else. And I'd like to kind of talk uh, about motors career uh, because, you know, we got to go out there and fight ISIS together. We got to, yeah. you know, you got to wear a tight flight suit. Mine was still not tight, but uh, you know, yeah. do loops to music. The last thing, UP 2.5, whoever made the video about no helmet fires existing. I don't know if that was Air Force PA because they're notorious for throwing flankers and MIGs all over every kind of propaganda yeah. we have. Um, but, I mean, it's those type things that kind of is like, yeah, like get like I, the only thing I remember, and I was a firestorm oh, yeah. on Facebook of getting rid of helmet fires. Um, it doesn't sound like you're getting rid of helmet fires in UPT. Is that a bad sales yeah. pitch, or is that a no, true man. thing? I mean, what what what's the Dude, deal there? Like the washout rate of PTN is ten percent higher than what it was in UPT. Two point five uh, right now currently is higher than historical averages on the washout rates. So absolutely not. Like, um. Yeah, I can't speak for how that how that specific phrase got in there, but I was part of that like discussion, and it got very heated, as you saw, even with you know. Um, I laugh at that because I'm like, seriously, okay, like you know me, like I I'm not going to say, hey man, it's okay, like like no helmet fires for you, it's fine, right? Because yeah, I mean, think about you know the worst place that you can be in in the Viper is have the helmet fire in the EUR. You're like. Am I late? Oh, what's going on? Like, that's terrible, right? So yeah. we need to get people to compartmentalize, right? And how you do that is create those friction points, right? And so um, real quick, um, I fly with uh, UPT 2.5 students here at Randolph, and I also fly a little bit of the T6 pit, you know, the instructor uh, upgrade. And it is really cool to see these guys are these guys and gals are in the mission phase of 2.5 right now and they are making full up airmanship decisions at this level at you know 65 75 hours ish in their timeline this one uh this one um student that i flew with just quickly as a vignette uh stepped up you know and i looked at their grade sheet then pretty well overall it's 401 at step as far as for the weather 400 foot ceilings and you're just going to go brief up to Nombrapoles. He's like, Hey, I want to, I want to do some area work. Here's the three top maneuvers that I don't feel comfortable working like, and I want to do those first. And then I want to, I haven't done these next four maneuvers in over a month. I'd like to do that next. And then if I have any time left over, I'll do the maneuvers that I like to do. I mean, that's a 180 out from what we saw, you know? And so then, yeah. and, and what's even cooler is like, yeah. and, and so he's going through his little brief and he goes, all right, I know the weather is below mids, but if you look at the TAF, by the time we should be coming out of the MOA, the TAF shows that this should be at 600 or 700 feet. And he's like, and he's like, well, I'm kind of on the fence of whether I should try to do that or not. I said, hey, you know, what's, what do we need to file there, right? And he goes through the weather stuff and, he, and, I'm, and we're within 100 feet of basically being able to do it. And he's like, I, I want to try to do this. I'm like, awesome. Like, and so we get out there, we pull up to ADIS in the airspace after he's, you know, he's fencing out. Weather's below. 
I don't say anything. He goes, hey, sir, well, there's below mens. Uh, you know what? Uh, we did brief up our backup plan, so I plan to do the vectors, or I want to do the full procedure to localize her back to Randolph and then option climb out for the ILS. How many students did that in your time? Yeah, no. Yeah, that yeah. Wouldn't so, happen. so when I say when we're creating helmet I mean, fires, or like we are, we're creating, I would say, complex decisions that these kids have to do, and when they're rewarded with that, we reward them by going, "You nailed this. Let's do more of that." And so, anyways, I, I kind of, I think it, a, a lot. There was definitely a lot of emotion involved in that. I mean, but all I can tell you is. I fly with I fly here at, at AUTC. That's not what's happening. So I believe you. I've flown <laughs> with you. I know who you are. So if I have any credibility, which is none, but oh, thanks. Uh, I vouch for it. you. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> take it for it's worth. Yeah. nothing. Um, <laughs> no, that's cool. I again, I do remember that. I will say too. I know on the Facebook page, like Satan. Yeah, we uh, just had we just had him out here. He went out. Yeah. Yeah. And so if, if Satan comes back and is saying, hey, it's actually okay, all right, that's like two data points that I'll say, all right, yeah. Uh, yeah. maybe I'll hit I believe. And, you know, I was like, Satan was, you know, was pretty quiet at first. I'm like, so, you know, how's this going to go, you know? And uh, and so we started putting. Yeah, he's he's just, ju yeah, he's judging and just like waiting to like, it sounded like, I mean, it was a stacked cadre that came yeah, out yeah. there. Some old, old, old crusty yeah. hog drive. No, it was good. And, uh, you know, at first, uh, and this is typical most of the times, so, you know, we'll get the, the pointed spears, you know, and I'm, we're, we're ready for it. But what I liked about them is when they showed up, they're like, it's obvious that like fighter pilots, as much as they, you know, actively, you know, go transmit, they care deeply about, you know, wherever they're at, whether it's an ops unit or where for the, for, you know, Satan, the crew, the FTU. They care deeply about making the best possible fighter pilot that they can because they know what kind of mission sets they're going to be asked to do coming forward, right? So when we come from the place of that where it's like everyone really cares deeply, then we can have a rational and, and logical, even a heated debate, right? I mean, they don't have to agree with everything that I'm doing here. But the fact is, if we're doing this from the right reasons and we're we're working on that, then it's all good. And that's what I think the, the Satan and uh, crew team kind of showed that they come out here and they're like some of the stuff they're like mm, i don't know at some of them are like wow this is really awesome like and the fact that we can have that conversation now is i think a huge win i don't want everyone to hit the i believe button i need to have the skeptics out there because the skeptics are my checks and balance right because i i i've been doing this for so long now i see the benefit at a tactical level and no matter how detached i like to try to be i still am going to have that emotional response like i really want them to do well I need I need the yeah. skeptics to go. Well, let's see it. Let's see what the numbers say. And I think that's our checks and balances for this. Yeah, I'm curious. Again, I think in my mind, I've kind of drawn the line in the sand of like, I'll give you the PTN, you know, uh, type deal, and then hopefully like UPT 2.5 as enough data points pump out of that, then maybe see, yeah, a more professional or you know, a, a student walking out who's got more tricks up his sleeve than I did. Yeah. I was, you know, in Dojo, he was F-35 uh, demo pilot when I was, when I was doing demo, he was one of my first students when I was a FAPE and we were talking right at the, the end of both of us getting out of active duty. Yeah. He was, he was an F-35, uh, F-3, FTU out there, Luke. And he said, Hey, you know, a, and he was a strike Eagle guy mm -hmm. previous, you know, so he did upgrade to get just into a single seat cockpit. <laughs> but he said that in his, in his opinion, F-35 wingman walking out the door 
were equivalent to like a four ship flight mm-hmm. lead and another in a fourth gen fighter just with what they're OC. Now, granted, they have more, they got some cool toys and tricks yep. that you don't have afforded to you in the Viper or the Strike Eagle, probably even the C model, but the picture they were able to see air to air wise and take that data, process it, and kind of run run a picture was equivalent to what you kind of get to in, as a four ship flight lead. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we taught the processor. We value the processor in fifth gen and really with all our new websites. Have you seen the C-130J, the cockpit? I mean, wow. I mean, compared to what the Herc used to be, it's crazy, you know? Also, the HUD is about the size of my (laughs) desk right here, which I don't know how it's like how you see everything. But yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's night and day. And that's, again, I think it's, it's really cool to hear all this and the ability to leverage technology. I am skeptical. I mean, I know it, and I think it's valid for me to be skeptical for when you're done or when it moves to the next phase. Yep. You know, it has to be a very viable product because I, I do see scalability issues here. Like we only have, there's only so many pilots that can come back and be instructors. Like that's going to be a limp fact. I don't see a way around that. Yep. Um, there, it, there obviously will be efficiencies that help. Um, but then when it gets to, you know, when it, crosses the line will the grade sheet in 2022 be the same in 2052 you know like that that's the same thing that we yeah. have to watch out for because the technology is going to keep improving the the threat's going to change the equipment's going to change so embracing that hopefully this new innovation push will kind of continue to churn yeah we'll see where it goes indeed i'll be i'll be dead i'll be dead so whatever fine. you'll be crusting uh, in your <laughs> rocking chair like yeah. back, back yeah, in the day right. Uh, sitting on the fr- sitting on the front porch. Just, I was like, I'm like, am I the guy sitting on the front porch? I don't feel like I'm sitting on the front porch just yet. But it's maybe, gonna be a sad uh, day when we're in our rocking chairs and the last like viper like is no longer and they're all on sticks. And I'm like, Ugh. like you see that with the with the Vietnam guys, like, and they're just like, it breaks our oh yeah, they're like sixty two eight five eight two five. Yeah, that was my plane. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's happening, man. That's yeah. happening right it, now. Well, I mean, what would you think? The first time I saw the, you know. Pilotless F-16, the QFF-16 flat around. A piece, I of, my, a piece of me died that day. Yeah, you're like, <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't think I like I'd this. have no problem shooting down um, a QF-4. Nothing whatsoever. You put me where a QF-16, yeah. oh, no, I don't want to do that. Couldn't do it. <laughs> Couldn't do it. Uh, it that's what's, yeah, yeah. It's, it, you're right. I mean, it's going to be, when you go to the museum, right, like you, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, it's an F-16. I flew that. Like, you're the old yeah. guy now. It was just like. None of the, I remember when these were flying. Like, oh, man. So, yeah, it happens. Yeah. What can you do? Yep. Well, hey, real quick, kind of want to talk a little bit about uh, motoring your career because I've consumed a lot of time talking about UPT 2.5 and PTN, which I'm appreciative of. Because, again, you're the guy who knows and everything else. I mean, I've, I've mentioned a couple of different times on the podcast. And, again, I say I just don't know enough about it. So, it'd be cool to come out there and see it in first you know, first Absolutely. person and maybe be able to hit the I believe button. So, we'll have to do that. But can you – uh so a lot of Viper time in your career, Thunderbird, a lot of combat deployments. We deployed together, Operation Inherent Resolve. Um, we got a podcast episode that's coming up at the, the end of the month to honor Pyro, yeah. um, who lost his life on our deployment. And so you participated in, in that too, which I'm appreciative of. Hopefully raise some money for Pyro's Wings, which is a foundation his family started uh, to get kids involved in aviation, get them flying. So it's pretty cool. Uh, but that's coming up. So. A lot to kind of cover with your career, but if we just kind of dive in a little bit, what made you want to be a fighter pilot? 
because it looked cool. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, you know, did you want did you want the Viper out of uh, no out of pilot yeah, training? Little, little yeah. known secret is I wanted to be a sea model guy. Uh, oh, that you know what? it makes sense now. It oh, all makes be quiet. Sense. We can go oh, in stop. This. <laughs> so I started flying when I was fourteen. I knew I wanted to be a pilot when I was really really little, and so um, I came from a small town. So I started working at the airfield for for flight time and. And so I started flying. So I came to the academy with flight time and uh, knew I saw the, th I saw, I mean, I saw planes and fast planes was where it was at, but then um, I saw the Thunderbirds and I was a freshman or sophomore up in uh, Broomfield, Colorado, which I think they still, I, wherever they renamed it, but you know, up there. Yeah. And once I saw the, the planes, the, you know, F-16, I was like, wow, that's awesome. Um, and then I wanted to go see models cause like I wanted to be the best air to air, right. You know, and. And yeah. my best friend in the world, he was, uh, uh, we grew up together actually. And, uh, Wayne, Wayne Frost was, uh, the crew chief for the wing jet at Luke air force base. And I was a cadet and he had talked to the wing commander saying, Hey, you know, my best friend, we're like brothers, you know, he's, he's in the, he's the academy and, you know, could we get him in a Viper ride? And so no kidding, like my best friend growing up, you know, as a crew chief on the wing jet, uh, says, Hey, you know, call this call the squadron and so i came down on my uh, leave or whatever you know spring break my freshman year and got a viper ride and it was a vfm and it was a fan fly or you know it was like i forget who i was flying with he's like dude if you throw up i'd just go cold mic and basically shut up don't talk i'm like okay and cool we flew vfm <laughs> and it was awesome like once they did that and he's like so what do you want to do and i still remember that. i wish i remembered the guy's name he goes what do you want to do man and i said i want to be in the fight like that's really at that point, like in my, where I was in my thought, I was like, I want to be in the fight. And, and so he's like, well, C models, man, they're, they're really good, man. They're really good at air to air. I mean, he gave him props, but he's like, you want to be in the fight. You need to go multi-role. And I was like, okay, sold. So then he's like, you got three, three choices, A-10, Strike Eagles or F-16s. And I'm like, and I had the fight in the F-16. I'm like, this is it. And so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that's how I, how my vector towards the Viper uh, happened. Yeah, that's awesome. He saved your life, you know, just, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so right. I mean, obviously out of pilot training into the Viper, what was your kind of path from base to base there? Yeah. A little non-standard. Um, I volunteered to get some, uh, some leave to get through pilot training faster. Cause, uh, some, some dudes were get, having like a year waiting. And so I didn't want to wait. So yeah. I gave up, you know, 14 of my 60 days from the Academy, which a lot of people told me I was stupid for doing, but I was like, I want to get to pilot training. So I went to Moody uh, for T6s. So I, I sold yeah. my first solo was a 12-hour plane. Like, literally smelled yeah. new. It was amazing. That's um, awesome, yeah. Yeah, flew Moody and then went to Laughlin for uh, T38s and then um, uh, back to Moody for IFF <laughs> back then and then to uh, B course. And then um, they said, hey, uh, you know, if you want to get really good at being a fighter pilot, go to Korea first. So went to Osan. Uh, and then, uh, Osan Hill, Hill for a couple, uh, uh, you know, Operation Iraqi Freedom tours, uh, 2007, 2009, and then back to Kunsan as an instructor then. And then from there to, uh, picked up for the Thunderbirds. Right. And then, so what was really cool about the Thunderbirds was I got hired pretty young. So I was still, I came off the team as a captain. And so, um, I got to spend about a year and a half flying as an aggressor. And that was an awesome mission set. That was really cool. That was like ice on the cake. So, you know, yeah. a lot of folks, especially with the team, they just go to the Thunderbirds and they leave. And so for me to be able to do that and uh, aggressors was really, really cool. Um, and then came to Shaw, started in the in the shooters, right? And then got pushed over to the gamblers.
Yeah. Twelve save yet again. It's a yes. team there. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, I was asked uh, Iraq 2007 versus 2009 those deployments because 2007 that was still pretty. I mean, Fallujah, I'm thinking like 06, right? Was is is a really busy time that 05, 06 time frame. Was it still pretty busy in 07? Because 09 it was tapering off, right? Yeah, 09 was a little quieter for us. Um, 07 was busy. We got, I mean, the first day, the first hour I was there. I mean, they're like, "Hey, welcome to Mortaritaville. And I'm like, "What?" Sure enough, clocks and alarm goes off. Boom, boom. You know, so. It was definitely, yeah, it was that. And then uh, I just remember 2007, the ground-to-ground combat was, like, for real. Like, I mean, just taking off every sortie and just seeing tracer rounds, 50 cals, like, you know. And so for us, ticks were, were there was ticks out in it, you know, so the troops in contact for full-up firefights was real. Actually, my first combat employment was the the gun. So Polar Fuse and I were um, flying, so two <laughs> two captains, and, uh, troops in contact, danger close, and we were strafing. So that was our, my first combat employment was strafing. So that definitely felt like a war, like a force on force, you know, as far as for the yeah. just Iraq was just, it was kind of crazy. And then it started calming down as we left. And then the folks that replaced us, because we were doing the, the rainbow squadrons uh, at Hill, you know, so it was like a two year footprint of Hill F 16s in some form or fashion being at Balad. And then we went back out on the backside of that with the, in 09 it was quieter but um you know with that war you know how it goes it ebbs and flows there's there's nights that are really busy and nights where you know it's really bored doing not ntisr right so oh xcast yeah favorite um which i know we yeah we did some xcast together um yeah do some other things together i mean comparatively you know the oir deployment 2014 i mean i thought yeah, I was excited to go to the MC12 as a fape because I was like, well, yeah, you know, I I joined to go do something, right? And yeah, I'm gonna miss everything. Little did I know that it would never, yeah, you know, never ends. Um, I think you know ISIS that was one too that with it popped back up. Yeah, didn't think going back to Iraq and going into Syria and doing things like that, comparing you know your 0709 and then the OIR deployments. Can you kind of you know, comparatively like the tempo wise like? Oh, the tempo was crazy. I mean, you saw with with Iraq was similar, right? Remember when we do the missions in Iraq? Because remember, we had two different ROEs. We had two different, like, full-up wars going on. You know, yeah. the the stuff that we were doing up in um, in Syria specifically and, you know, the fight for Kobani, that was the full-up, like, holy moly. We, we dropped so much weapons. I mean, what was our – I think Gamblers were the first to go – first F-16 unit to go over 1,000 weapons. And then I know the Strike Eagles crushed that uh, – you know, but I think doubled that. And then the B1s did way more than us as well. So that was definitely not what we saw in OIF, right? But uh, the rack portion of it was similar, right? As far as like being real restrictive on the weapons employments and whatnot and being a little bit more, I would say, not discriminating, but uh, a lot more focused on where we're putting weapons versus, hey, we've got this full-up thing and this whole, this whole building needs to come down, which we saw in Kabani. I so. feel like, you know, I always say it's like, I think we dropped the most precision guided weapons of any F-16 unit. And then yeah. the, you know, we got ripped out. They dropped the most and then the shooter showed up and they dropped them. It just kept growing and growing and growing. Yeah. And yeah, obviously the strike Eagles did more and the B1s did more, but everyone just exponentially just kept dropping. That was some, I like, it was, it was a weird if you came back with bombs on the jet, I felt like, especially certain periods there. Yeah. There was only, I think in 07, there was only a few units. I cleared off my rails once and I was one of, 
only like literally on one hand how many of the unit cleared off the rails and it was like holy you clear off the rails and then like for us it was like what happened yeah why, why are there weapons still there <laughs> you only dropped yeah. one yeah what's going on today yeah uh yeah that's that that i mean obviously that's my only perspective for deploying in the viper but it seemed busy time and then obviously talking to some of the guys who are dealing with Kabani on the ground and seeing the other side of it from the ground and what the impact of it was there was was pretty unique, which I don't know if that, you don't always, especially being in the air, you know, you're, you could be hundreds of miles away from wherever you're working, right? You go work for a few hours, you go back home, right? The jet gets turned and you're probably not on the schedule for another day or two. You really don't have that connection necessarily other than through the, the glow who's in the unit, you're really hearing about it. So yeah. I know we got to do a little field trip during our deployment too. And some of those guys were tied into things that were going on where we were. And it was interesting to see yeah, the flip side and how it all comes together. Cause the United States can do some stuff when it, when it really wants to. And it's pretty impressive, I think. Yeah. I mean, stuff. like I said, we're talking about all this training and all this stuff We're we are the world's best in a lot of ways um, because when we need to pull it all together in a joint capacity, and true, true multi-domain effects were really good. And that's what's exciting yeah. to see. I think it was me and you. Uh, I, it was. One, um, I think the UAE, they were supposed to be the mission commander. So doing oh, a close yeah. strike daytime. <laughs> you remember? I mean, I get the, the targeting pod footage. I mean, it looks like a nuclear weapon went off. But oh, yeah. Do you yeah, remember, remember that? Like, I remember like it was us taking off behind the Jordanians and then uh sharing the tanker but like they like who was like number four like couldn't get on the boom for them and you and i are just like getting ready to divert to baghdad yep uh and then finally getting on and then having the emiratis like declare us as we're like on the strike train like running in there like what is going on here this is craziness yeah they're gonna run us out of the tot remember we're like yeah 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 that was why we did that yeah it was down i mean down to the second yeah the second (laughs) i think i think it really came down it was literally the second getting the bombs off the jet yeah, the Kayak denied. Which is a huge, it was a huge window too. It was like forty minutes, and like this is good. And they denied the TOT extension, right? And so we're like, yeah, cool. We're gonna compress this train. I do remember dropping those bombs though, and just like, I don't know if it went high order. There was so much fire below for because they were dropping like GBU thirty ones or something. It's like, oh well, yeah, and they hit those. They hit the te- little holding tanks, right? And so yeah, I've never seen Amazing. it. Yeah, both of us. That was the largest weapons uh, or first order effect I've ever seen. I mean. It, remember, we were at, what, 19,000 feet, and it, I think that cloud was at least as high as us. It was crazy. Yeah. And, I mean, the targeting pod footage, I think we were, I mean, we were like 20, 25 miles out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just watching the mushroom cloud, and, I mean, it was it was wild. So, for those listening, Motor and I were at the back of the strike train of, I think we had, what, four Emiratis, a couple of Moroccan Vipers. Jordanians. of the hot. Jordanians and, and the, the hogs. Emios. Hogs were there and yeah. Canadian F6 uh, uh, yeah. uh, F18s. Yeah. Yeah. So Motors, the deputy mission commander, back of the train, cleaning everything up. And uh, yeah, there's several things we were working through on that day. But I remember, the, I mean, the Emiratis, it was like they're dropping GBU 31s as a four ship. I mean, there was so much and into an oil field, like oil tanks. There was so much fire. It was uh, amazing. Yes. There was lots of fire. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if my GBU-38 uh, did anything here, but I'm going to count it. <laughs> it went into the fire. Yeah. Oh, man. Your time, uh, I'm going to transition here a little bit. Time on the Thunderbirds, because I did the single ship demo piece, which uh, I really enjoyed. I'm sure you really enjoyed your time on the Thunderbirds. 
anything, any kind of like standouts? Like if you could go back and be a Thunderbird again, would you do it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think I, so. Number one, I'm like, you know, wait, those flight suits no more. They won't fit anymore. Yeah. I don't know. I don't have a Thunderbird body. That's why I couldn't do it. No, nope. yeah. not anymore. But uh, no, the Thunderbirds was, uh, you know, I think it's one of those once in a lifetime opportunities for me, you know, as far as it, just the stars have to align. I mean, I was, I applied, I had, it was the top of my F-16 game as far as being an IP and, and, and just, you know, you've seen guys that, you know, personally people have tried out several times for the teams and, and a lot of times it's just timing. And so timing was really, really uh, on my side on that. So, you know, I attribute it to just a lot of luck that I got on the team uh, when I did. And it was, it was awesome. Um, you know, the combat ops tempo is, is what it is. And it's really easy to get kind of a, I would say a jaded or a kind of an edgy feel about like, you know, there's lots of things that I don't like and this and that, because you're, you're just, that's, that's a grisly business that we do. Right. Yep. And being able to hang that up for a couple of years. Right. And talk about, remember the feelings, you know, remember the feelings of what drove you to want to serve. Right. And, and I, you know, I, as I get older now, I, I look at more of that. Like I made choices that brought me to where I'm at now, really not knowing the long-term, like what I was doing. I just knew that I wanted to fly something fast and I wanted to serve my country. But I look back now and I go more of the, like the pride of being an American and being a service member, being able to wear this uniform. I'm feeling the effects of that. Cause you know, although I don't feel like I'm old, I'm training 24 year olds how to fly. And, and I know that the, my time is finite in this uniform. And so I think the, the Thunderbirds, when I look back at it all and, and I'm in my rocking chair and, you know, yeah, <laughs> with my sweet tea, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be proud of not, not the, how close I flew or, you know, how many locations I went to. I'm going to be proud of like still having people fall, find me years and years and years later going, Hey, I remember you at, you know, this location and, and I'm now so-and-so I'm airman so-and-so, or I went to the Marines and all that stuff. And I mean, it's, I, I think it's not lost upon anybody that does the demo team of any capacity, single ship or on the teams of the impact. You have no idea what impact you're making. You really don't like you think you do. And then you find out these letters like Fifi Malakowski talked about. She has a picture of a female fighter pilot who she has a picture of Fifi and her when this girl was like nine. I mean, you just yeah. don't know the impact. And so I'm proud to like give back because I look at that as kind of paying it forward saying, you know, our Air Force is the world's greatest. And despite all the things that we see day in, day out and stuff that gets on the Facebooks, I think a lot of it is because people want things to change. We want to make it better, but it's still the world's best. I'm still thankful to be an American serving in my Air Force and I hope that the next generation that replaces me, number one, it's better than me. I want, I really do want them to be better than me, but I want, I want them to be inspired for something greater and greater than themselves. That's service before self. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I do think that's a really good point because my time with the demo is like, I enjoyed flying the Viper and doing the demo, enjoyed the team, uh, but interacting with the people and you know the kids and seeing people get excited about it. And then actually, I just today, you know, I had someone reach out about one of the podcast episodes that he heard. And this is Fiddy, my buddy, who was in the second episode. I've name dropped him twice now, episode to episode. <laughs> but uh, this guy, he he was injured as a firefighter, wanted to go fly, <clears throat> excuse me. And he heard Fiddy's episode. And he's like, for whatever reason, I don't know why I picked that episode to listen to, but Fiddy had broken his back and had to get a bunch of waivers to fly. You know, and so you, you hope like you make a difference and 
make it a little bit better for someone else, open up a door for someone else, improve. Yeah, just part of it. Because I think, yeah. again, it's it's a good org. I would, if I had to go do it again, I would do it again, right? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Because it, it was a it was an honor to be able to do it. The people I got to meet, the things I got to do was it was incredible. So um, you do just want to make it make it good. So when people get passionate, like you're screwing this up. What are you doing over there? Pilot training next. You're just, you're <laughs> killing everything. Uh, that's why I think that's why there's a lot of animosity and yeah, you know, part of it. So, um, I don't know. It's interesting. I will just say this real quick. Fun fact for the listeners. If you happen to be in Fort Worth Alliance airport, there is a picture of motor with hair as well as in the Sumter, uh, mall. So as a Thunderbird, if you're ever, is it still in Sumter? Oh, well, I mean, I haven't been there in like two or three years, okay, but no way. it was still there. It, but the, I, I highly doubt they've renovated that mall, so I'm willing to bet Motor Riley with hair in a very tight flight suit that is Fort, still donning the, the wall. The Fort Worth one's still there, man. And I swear, yeah, dude, dudes will take pictures and be like, hey, it's. did you know it's here? I'm like, yeah, yes, yes, thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. Keep yeah, sending it. Every single time. Every <laughs> single time. So it's a great photo. So yeah. if you want to see what Motor look like in a tight flight suit. With uh, hair. The Sumter Mall or... Fort Worth Alliance FBO. You can either either of those locations. Good reasons to travel. Yeah. <laughs> well, Motor, I appreciate you taking the time today to talk about Pilot Training Next, UPT 2.5, and share a little bit about your career. I enjoyed talking, uh, catching up a little bit. So it's good to see. You. I'm glad you're doing awesome things. And again, if there's someone who should be running and figuring this stuff out, I know it definitely should be you. So it's awesome to hear you doing good good work. Well, thanks, Ryan. Appreciate it, and really appreciate you taking the time to to host me. I know there's far more qualified candidates to put on on your show but uh, it's really cool to reminisce a little bit and uh and talk about hopefully things that are gonna make your force better awesome thanks motor i appreciate it hey thanks for listening if you enjoyed today's episode don't forget to swing over to itunes drop a rating or review you can check out the new website afterburnpodcast.com and until next time don't bring a week The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain.